This is Cedar Fort's Come Follow Me with David Ridges for Moroni chapter 7 through 9. I'm Sean Nobman, your guest host. I'm the author of Shake the Powers of Evil with Captain Moroni, published by Cedar Fort. It imagines that Captain Moroni has come back today to drop both some wisdom and some pile drivers on today's teens and preteens. In Shake the Powers of Evil, Captain Moroni tactfully meets your child where he or she is at spiritually, gently picks them up, and then violently hurls them as far in the right direction as possible. Your child would have su- will have such a great time getting the living daylights beaten out of them by Captain Moroni that they will jump up and beg him for more. So today our Come Follow Me lesson comes from Moroni chapter 7 through 9. Moroni begins these chapters by sharing that he's going to be giving the words of his father Mormon. Moroni 7 verse 1 says, And now I, Moroni, write a few of the words of my father Mormon, which he spake concerning faith, hope, and charity. For after this manner did he speak unto the people, as he taught them in the synagogue where they had built, which they had built for the place of worship. So these chapters, Moroni 7 through 9, are teachings from Mormon and not Moroni. Uh, I love uh, chapter 7, verse 2 through 5. Verses 2 through 5, I'm going to read them and let Mormon establish the tone of this lesson with his own beautiful words. Verse 2, And now I, Mormon, speak unto you, my beloved brethren, and it is by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy will, because of the gift of his calling unto me, that I am permitted to speak unto you at this time. Wherefore, I would speak unto you that are of the church, that are the peaceable followers of Christ, and that have obtained a sufficient hope by which ye can enter into the rest of the Lord, from this time henceforth until ye shall rest with him in heaven. And now, my brethren, I judge these things of you because of your peaceable walk with the children of men. For I remember the word of God which saith, By their works ye shall know them. For if their works be good, then they are good also. What wonderful promises and peaceful, solemn language. I have always felt that too little of the Book of Mormon is about Mormon's life. We read so much of his writings about others, but so little about him. So let's take a little time right now to talk about Mormon. Uh, We know names were important to Mormon. We know that because he named his own son after his and my favorite Nephite captain, Captain Moroni. We also know that his own name was important to him. In 3 Nephi 5.12, we read, And behold, I am called Mormon, being called after the land of Mormon, the land in which Alma did establish the church among the people, yea, the first church which was established among them after their transgression. So he knows that he, and he was raised apparently, to know that he was named after the waters of Mormon, where Alma taught the people after he escaped from wicked King Noah, after he was converted by Abinadi. Now, I know that we're not supposed to use the word Mormon to describe the church, and part of that is because originally opponents of the church used that name as an insult or in derision, those Mormons. Uh, But I have always felt like the joke was on them, because the waters of Mormon was a place of restoration, It is where Alma restored the church among the people of Nephi. Remember, once Alma got to Zarahemla, he was tasked by King Mosiah to establish a formal church patterned after the one he set up first in the waters of Mormon and then the land of Helam. So always remember that Mormon means restoration, and the prophet Mormon was named for that place of restoration. 
So when people call us the Mormon Church, in a way, they're actually calling us, even though it may be in derision, even though it may be due to their own ignorance, they may, they're calling us the restored church. And so even though we don't ourselves refer to ourselves as Mormons or, as, or this as the Mormon church, uh, we can take comfort knowing that even in, even in that, that, that derisive or, or divisive uh, name that people might refer to us as incorrectly, they are still refer- referring to the restored church of Jesus Christ. So Mosiah 18.30, it builds on this. It reads, um, Mosiah chapter 18, verse 30, And now it came to pass that all of this was done in Mormon, yea, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon, yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon. How beautiful are they to the eyes of them that there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. Yea, and how blessed are they, for they shall sing to his praise forever. I've often wondered if that verse, where his name is included so many times, was a passage that Mormon discovered as he was doing his summary, or if it was one he wrote. Imagine, if you will, that he's, he's, he's reviewing you know, the, the records of Alma, and he gets to this passage, and this sudden outpouring of love and gratitude and joy and spirit that he felt as he read about his name, where, about where his name came from. Yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon. How beautiful are they to the eyes of them that there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. The waters of Mormon was a very blessed and restorative place. And I think that Mormon knew that, and I think that his name was significant to him throughout his life. And that that's part of the reason why he named his own son something significant for him, naming him Moroni. Now this verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 30 of Mosiah that we just read, it reminds me of the events of April 6th, 1830, the day our church was formally organized and restored, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We can find some information about that day in DNC 21, and I have also found some other accounts that I'd like to touch on. Um, So... This is something that someone wrote about that day. We picture the young prophet calling the meeting to order, outlining the purposes for it, and inviting those assembled to join in solemn prayer to our Heavenly Father, thanking him that he had been seen fit to reestablish his church upon the earth and asking his blessings upon those assembled and the events of the day. One of the first orders of business, bringing into play the principle of common consent, was to ask those participating if they desired to have the church organized. To this they consented by unanimous vote. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was administered to those who had previously been baptized, and that, as far as we know, that's the first time that this holy ordinance had been performed by the Lord's servants in this dispensation. Uh, it also, uh, another account found on the, on the church's website, uh, and it talks about how sometime during the day of April 6th, baptisms were held. These ordinances may have been performed in nearby Seneca Lake, although this is not certain. The record states that we then laid our hands on each individual measure member of the church present, that they might receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and be confirmed members of the Church of Christ. The prophet also wrote, Several persons who had attended the above meeting became convinced of the truth and came forward shortly after and were received into the church. Among the rest, my own father and mother were baptized, to my great joy and consolation. 
Did you remember that Joseph Smith's parents were baptized on April 6th, 1830? I didn't. Of this, the mother of the prophet, Lucy, writes, Joseph stood upon the shore, and taking his father by the hand, he exclaimed with tears of joy, Praise to my God that I have lived to see my own father baptized into the true church of Jesus Christ. Following the confirmations, the Holy Ghost was poured out upon us to a very great degree. Some prophesied whilst we all praised the Lord and rejoiced exceedingly. So thinking about these events of April 6th, 1830, let's read Mosiah chapter 18, verse 30 one more time. And now it came to pass that all this was done in Mormon, yea, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon, yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon. How beautiful are they to the eyes of them who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer, yea, and how blessed are they, for they shall sing to his praise forever. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, remember and take note, what verse is this? This is Mosiah chapter 18, verse 30. Mosiah 18:30, And the restoration of the church was April 6, 1830. Now, I don't believe that those who did the, the verses and the chapters of the Book of Mormon, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that they you know, conspired to make Mosiah 18.30 so similar to the restoration that occurred in our time, in our dispensation, in April 6, 1830. I'm not, I'm not arguing that they did that on purpose, but I wouldn't be surprised if God did. Mosiah 18.30 is a beautiful verse, and those numbers, every time we read it, it should remind us of our own restoration of our own conversion, of the restoration of our church today, and that the word Mormon can mean restoration. So Moroni chapter 7 is Mormon's master class, according to his own son. Recall that Moroni didn't think that he was going to be able to write more, and um, after some time being on his own, he found some more ore and more uh, to be able to make more plates, and he wrote some very important things in in Moroni 1 through 6 uh, to help the administration of the church, the ordinations, um, uh, the sacrament, and different things. And then we get to Moroni 1 through 6 is only two and a half pages. There's only two and a half pages there. And then you get to Moroni 7, and it is it is just beautiful. Um, let's read verse six, six, verses 16 and 17 from Moroni 7. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work. For he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one, neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. You know, I've got, I've got four sons. My wife and I have four sons, and um, my youngest, his name is Johnny, and he's nine. And a couple of years ago at bedtime, he said to me, Dad, you know what would be the worst thing about going to the other place? You know, not heaven. And I said, what? He said, not ever being able to do good. Because you would get into trouble. If you tried to do good in the other place, they wouldn't be happy with you. They would be mad at you. And no one is all bad. 
Everyone wants to do good sometimes. How awesome is that, right? No one is all bad. Everyone wants to do good sometimes. Imagine uh, imagine being somewhere where, where doing good was, was frowned upon, where you got into trouble for doing it, where you were discouraged from doing or being good. Um, and my, my, my little boy, Johnny, he understood that that, that that probably would be the worst thing, the worst part um, about not going to heaven. And so, you know, going on into Moroni chapter 7, and this whole idea about angels and miracles, and have they ceased? In chapter 7, verse 27, it reads, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven, and hath sat down on the right hand of God, to claim of the Father his rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of men. You know, sometimes I think that we might feel that angels or miracles have ceased in our own lives, or maybe that we haven't felt the, the, the presence of the Holy Ghost or the love of God in a while. And when we go through these, you know, personal mists of darkness, if you will, uh, we can begin to doubt. We can begin to doubt and wonder, um, you know, have miracles ceased? And verse 37 is, is Mormon's response. He, so, he says, Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for it is by faith that miracles are wrought, and it is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief and all is vain. Now, I know personally that mists of darkness do not always arise because of our own lack of faith or because of our own errors or sins, uh, that sometimes they just come. And the difficult thing about a mist of darkness is that sometimes we, uh, you know, when, you, when the mists are gone and you can see the tree and you can feel the warmth from it and you have your hand on the rod, you can move, you can progress, you can, you can uh, grow quickly and move towards that tree and that love of God, and you can feel it as you're progressing. The difficult thing about the mist of darkness is that you can't see the tree, and you also can't feel it. And I know what it's like to go through mist of darkness in my life, where I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm not feeling the love of the Lord. I'm not feeling the Spirit, and I'm I, I'm reading, I'm praying, and I, for whatever reason, I'm going through a mist of darkness. And what I've learned about those mists is that if I just hold on and I keep reading and I hold fast to the word of God, I keep praying, I keep doing, that eventually and suddenly those mists dissipate. They dissipate and suddenly that light and that warmth from the tree of life, it just bursts forth. And uh, the the very interesting thing about that is, is that you can see your progress if you, you know, I'm not from Utah. I, I grew up outside of Seattle. And in Seattle, you never know where you're going until you get there. I mean, you can't see it. You can't see your final destination. In Utah, you know, if you're on the I-15 corridor and you're going to the point of the mountain from from Provo, you can see the point of the mountain 40 minutes or half an hour before you get there. And then if you're going to Salt Lake and you pass the point, you can see Salt Lake City, you know, half an hour before you get there. And um, And you don't really see your progress. And when there's fog, it's disorienting in, in along the Wasatch Front because you don't have those mountains to, to kind of see where you are. Uh, but when the fogs lift, when the fog lifts and you can see where you suddenly are, you're like, wow, I've come so far. I didn't know I was so close. And that's one of the positive byproducts of a mist of darkness is that once those mists dissipate, 
then you look around and you're you're like, wow, I have really come a long way. And eventually we hopefully gain the faith to know that those mists will always dissipate. And we stop focusing on 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 um on the, the 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 things that we shouldn't focus on in our life and we start focusing on holding to the rod and helping others to come to the rod. And of course we can't leave that rod and go grab them and bring them back. We have to hold on. We don't have the leverage to bring anyone to the rod unless we're holding fast to it. That's the only way we have enough strength to be able to get them to the rod ourselves is that leverage of pulling on the rod with one hand and 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 leading and guiding and and gently tugging on others with the other. Um but Moroni really understood this. He understood that uh, that it's in the doing and in the faith that we see the miracles and that we get the assistance from angels. And to illustrate this thought, I, you know, Clayton Christensen, uh, Harvard business professor, author of The Innovator's Dilemma, it, he in his brilliant essay, Why I Believe, which if you haven't read it, please Google it, Clayton Christensen, Why I Believe, one of the things he talks about is that God preserves his most powerful gifts or weapons for those who are on the front lines. And I firmly believe that those who are on the front lines are not those who are called to be the bishop or the stake president or a general authority or the Relief Society general board. Or those, those are not those who are on the front lines. Yes, they are also on the front, front lines, but we can all be on the front lines. And one of the best ways to be on the front lines is through missionary work. If we are trying to be everyday missionaries, then we are on the front lines of the work and we entitle ourselves to to those powerful spiritual gifts and miracles and ministering of angels and confirmations that, that we so earnestly seek. If we are content to, to sit in the back and not engage in the three-part mission of the church and not engage in these, um, in proclaiming the gospel and redeeming the dead uh, and perfecting the saints, then we are not going to have access to those spiritual gifts that we may have felt at other times in our lives. And, uh, you know, in, in Clayton Christensen's book, The Power of Everyday Missionaries, he really outlines a brilliant and and spiritually guided you know, plan and framework for being an everyday missionary. And he, his, his um, words there were confirmed and I would say almost codified by uh, Elder Dallin Oaks in his 2016 general conference talk on sharing the gospel. So everyone knows, you know, President Oaks now in the in the first presidency, he uh, was an attorney and a judge. Uh, he went to the University of, Chicago, University of Chicago Law School and and became uh, the 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 chief judge of the Utah Supreme Court. And he was on the shortlist for a couple of different presidents to be named to the United States Supreme Court before his call as an apostle. And so he is a brilliant legal mind. And so in 2016, in his sharing the gospel talk, he borrows heavily from Clayton Christensen's book, The Power of Everyday Missionaries, and cites to it. And And I, I as an attorney myself, it, that was so meaningful. I had just recently read that book as well, and it had really affected me and blessed my life. And uh, I could see what Elder Oaks was doing, because in the law, we in, in the United States, we have something that we borrowed from from England called the common law, where the law 
is based on all of these prior precedents or decisions that uh, different judges have done on those same types of facts. And so you read these prior cases that have similar facts to your own, and based on how those judges decided those cases, you can predict how the judge will decide your case. And you make, if, if that case ended up, uh, has a resolution or judgment that you want in your own case, then in your arguments, you try to make your case as similar to the facts in that case as you can. If you don't want uh, the same conclusion, then you try to uh, distinguish your own facts from that other case as much as possible and argue why that decision should not be applied to your facts because your facts are different. And so this common law process of these slow accrual, like a stalactite or a stalagmite of case law, based on these prior decisions, it takes time. It's slow. And it doesn't always address every nuance or every different possibility and creates a lot of ambiguity. And so sometimes legal scholars get together and they create what, what are called model rules. And they basically come in and they say, this is how we think the law should apply to this particular area of life. And they create this whole body of law. And they just kind of put it out there into the void, into the vacuum. And then what happens is that uh, attorneys who have clients with cases from that body of law, they, they read these model rules and they find rules that benefit them. They're like, well, the common law doesn't protect me and my client, but this model rule by these scholars seems more logical and it does protect my client. And so they argue in their briefing this particular, uh, this particular model rule. And if the judges are persuaded, then they adopt that model rule into the law, into the common law. It gets adopted. It becomes part of the body of law. And so that's a long analogy to explain that Elder Oaks was adopting uh, Clayton Christensen's words in The Power of Everyday Missionaries. And so I invite you to read that book and to uh, read Elder Oaks's talk and to to understand what Elder Oaks was trying to do. He's saying, hey, this brilliant, spiritual, kind, wonderful man has written this book about missionary work for everyday members of the church, not just for missionaries. If you read it, you will be blessed thereby, and you will be given tools that you need to be able to help others. And so the point of this is, as it relates to Moroni 7, is that if, just like in 37, verse 37 says, if these things have ceased, miracles and angels, it is because of unbelief and all is vain. If you feel like, if any of us, if we feel like that miracles have ceased, that angels have ceased, that the Holy Ghost has ceased in our lives, it may just be a mist of darkness and I invite you to hold on. But I don't invite you to just hold on like you're in the bottom of the canoe going down the waterfall and you're just, you know, holding on for dear life. I invite all of us to remember that God reserves his greatest gifts for those who are on the front lines and that a testimony is gained in the bearing of it. And I invite all of us, uh, you know, like Shakespeare, what is it, Henry V, Henry VIII, into the breach one more time, into the breach. And as we are seeking and striving to bless others and to bring others unto Christ, that we will feel that powerful confirming spirit again, that this is God's work, that this is his restored church, 
that President Nelson is his prophet, that Joseph Smith restored these things. And so um, faith and hope is not vain. Moving on in chapter 7, there's so much in chapter 7. If we get to uh, uh, verses 44 through 48, you can't teach these chapters, Moroni 7 through 9, without talking about charity. Verses 44 through 48 read, If so, his faith and hope is vain, for none is acceptable before God, save the meek and lowly in heart. And if a man be meek and lowly in heart, and confesses by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must needs have charity, for if he have not charity, he is nothing. Wherefore, he must needs have charity. And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. You know, one of the things here uh, in this verse, before we go on in in 46, in verse 45, it talks about how charity seeketh not her own. I think about that. I think about how, you know, Christ talks about, you know, seeking the best seats and, um, and that everyone loves their friends and, you know, just different things that Christ taught about, about how the Jews sought their own, those who were most like them, those who, um, who confirmed or validated themselves, instead of seeking out maybe those who were downtrodden or those who were afflicted or those who were less popular. And, uh, you know, I think about this and am I seeking my own? In what ways can I can I seek out those who Christ would have me seek out? In what ways can I help those who are maybe maybe overlooked to um, to feel more involved or included? And that is that is one thing that uh, one way that we can show charity as well. Verse forty six uh, continues. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing. For charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all. For all things must fail. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. You know, we all fail in our lives. And sometimes we fail because we're pursuing the wrong things, going down the wrong path. And, you know, this whole idea of how charity never faileth, of course it's the theme of Relief Society, uh, but it reminds me of, you know, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden and burdened, for my yoke is easy and light. You know, following Christ, we can't ever fail. If we are Christ-like and we are helping others and serving others and have an outward look, then those actions are always justified and our life can never be a failure. There are many other other endeavors and, and you know, things that we think that are important and ways that we need to succeed. And sometimes those efforts fail and yet, we have to ask ourselves, if we had succeeded, would we have found success? Uh, you know, would these things have, have blessed our lives and the lives of others? You know, what do we gain if we win the thing that we seek, right? Another Shakespeare line. What do we win? If, what do we gain if we win the thing we seek? Sometimes the things that we're seeking provide no triumph and no victory and are hollow and sometimes even very damaging Verse 47 of chapter 7, but charity, oh, verse 48 rather, wherefore, my beloved brethren, 
Pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart, that ye may be filled with this love, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Amen. Right? Moroni 7 is Mormon's master class. This is basically the accrual, the, the, the aggregation from Moroni's filter of the most powerful, beautiful teachings of his father, Mormon. And there is so much here. It is, is such a full chapter. It represents what Moroni considers the very best of his father's teachings. And we'll move on now to Moroni chapter 8. Now, Moroni chapter 8 is all about a dispute over baptism and when people should get get baptized, right? Um, Moroni communicates to his father, Mormon, that uh, people were, you know, convinced that baptism was so important and that there was such a risk in not being baptized that they should baptize little children. And um, in verse 10, verses 10 and 11, Mormon says, Behold, I say unto you that this thing shall you teach. Repentance and baptism unto those who are accountable and capable of committing sin. Yea, teach parents that they must repent and be baptized, and humble themselves as their little children, and they shall all be saved with their little children. And their little children need no repentance, neither baptism. Behold, baptism is unto repentance, to the fulfilling the commandments, unto the remission of sins. So this is where we get this whole idea of the age of accountability. I want you to 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 realize and remember we should all realize and remember that the the tremendous blessing it is that the very moment that we reach the age of accountability and can become responsible for our mistakes and errors, you know, you know, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, we teach that that we can get baptized at eight years or above, and at this very moment that we can become accountable for our sins, at that same exact moment, God has provided a guide, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, what does that mean? It it means that God never intended or wanted anyone ever to contemplate or make a decision for which they would be held accountable without the guidance and direction of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Think of the love that that, that, that means that he has for us, that ideally none of us ever at any time would make a decision alone, a decision for which we could be held accountable, that, that it was his hope and plan that we would all have this great gift of the Holy Ghost the very moment that we became accountable for our decisions and our choices, that we would have access to the gift of the Holy Ghost to guide and direct and bless our lives. That is a, a huge, huge blessing and something that, that missionaries you know, can, can think about and that missionaries can teach about to their to their investigators. Right now, there are people all over the world that are trying to be good and do good. We do not claim to to uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. We have not cornered the market on truth or goodness. We come to you and we say, whatever you have, let us add to it and build upon it and bring what you have. And indeed, we all know people outside of the church who are phenomenal human beings. But all these people worldwide, they are making these decisions. Without the guidance of the gift of the Holy Ghost, imagine how much more good could be done. Imagine how much more comfort, how much more peace. And so 
the moment that an investigator makes this decision that, yeah, I want to be better, I want to do more, I want to follow Christ, the very moment that they make that decision, they're ready for baptism. They're qualified. As long as they are keeping, they decide to keep the commandments and they commit to keep these commandments, that decision to follow Christ, to become more like him, that is the moment that they, that they can get baptized. That is the door that opens to the straight gate and the narrow path is baptism. And so many people think they need to prepare for a long time to be baptized. But if you are desirous, if you have no more desire to do evil, but to do good to continually, if that is the, if you feel to sing the song of redeeming love, if you want to be better and, and, and do good right there, you are ready for baptism. And indeed, uh, Mormon knows this. In verse 25 of chapter 8, he says, And the first fruits of repentance is baptism. And baptism cometh by faith unto the fulfilling the commandments, and the fulfilling the commandments bringeth remission of sins. So the first fruits of repentance is baptism. That the moment we want to repent, the moment we want to do better, we are ready for baptism. That baptism is those are those first fruits of that decision. The goal for an investigator, elders and sisters, those who may be preparing for a mission, the goal is not to be baptized. The goal is to go to the temple. The goal is to endure to the end. The goal is to become like Christ. The door, the first step is baptism. If your investigators are interested and willing or desirous to improve, then God has prepared a guide, has prepared uh, the gift of the Holy Ghost to help in that progress, in that journey. Moroni 8.16, don't want to move on without just, Woe be unto them that shall pervert the ways of the Lord after this manner, for they shall perish except they repent. And he's talking about here, about uh, those who teach that baptism must be done when to babies. Woe unto them, he says. Behold, I speak with boldness, having authority from God, and I fear not what man can do, for perfect love casteth out all fear. How many lives have been blessed by that passage? Perfect love casteth out all fear. It's true. If we love those we are with, we will not fear them or fear losing them. If we have the love of Christ for others, if we are filled with love, then that love will motivate us to do those things to prepare. And if we are prepared, we shall not fear. Perfect love casteth out all fear. Now moving on to Mormon chapter 9. Before we discuss Mormon 9, let's remember a bit more about Mormon and his life. Remember in Mormon 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 1 of the Book of Mormon, within the Book of Mormon, he says, And now I, Mormon, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard, and call it the Book of Mormon. What kinds of things did Mormon see and hear personally, himself? Remember, everything that we have from the words of Mormon through 4th Nephi went through Mormon, went through his pen or his chisel or whatever. All of that was filtered through him. So he gave us all of those things, pulling from the record of the large plates of Nephi. Think of all the happy things Mormon learned about as he went through Nephite history. So many wonderful things, like, you know, the restoration of the church at the Waters of Mormon, obviously. Um, We have uh, Alma the Younger's conversion, the the sons of Mosiah going and teaching the Lamanites and all of those conversions. And then, of course, Captain Moroni. Uh, Captain Moroni was so meaningful to him. 
and so meaningful because Captain Moroni was a military captain who converted thousands of Lamanites through his 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 plan of mercy and in not killing those who would surrender but making them promise to leave their weapons of war and to never fight again that that plan of mercy led over the course of the Amalekiah wars to thousands of people being converted and Mormon as the military captain of the Nephites he read all of that and he included so much of it in his record and he wanted to do the same thing he wanted to do the same thing but in Mormon chapter if we go to Mormon 2 verse 18 this is what he writes and upon the plates of Nephi I did make a full account of all the wickedness and abominations but upon these plates I did forbear to make a full account of their wickedness and abominations for behold a continual scene of wickedness and abominations has been before mine eyes ever since I have been sufficient to behold the ways of man that's that was Mormon's life a continual scene of wickedness and abominations. In Moroni 9, verse 18, he says, O the depravity of my people, they are without order and without mercy. Behold, I am but a man, and I have but the strength of a man, and I can no longer enforce my commands. And later he talks about how just a few years earlier this had been a civil and delightsome people. Moroni 9 is like the worst. It is the worst chapter. It is. It relates the extreme nature of the depravity of the Nephites and the Lamanites, the burning of villages, killing of the women and children, and much, much worse. And I have struggled. How do I teach about Mormon, about Moroni 9? What do I share about Moroni 9? We read in verse 19, and they have become strong in their perversion, and they are alike, the Nephites and the Lamanites. They are alike brutal, sparing none, neither old nor young, and they delight in everything save that which is good. And the suffering of our women and our children upon all the face of this land doth exceed everything. Yea, yea, tongue cannot tell, neither can it be written. And now, my son, I dwell no longer upon this horrible scene. Behold, thou knowest the wickedness of this people. Thou knowest that they are without principle and past feeling, and their wickedness doth exceed that of the Lamanites. Behold, my son, I cannot recommend them unto God lest he should smite me. But behold, my son, I recommend thee unto God, and I trust in Christ that thou wilt be saved, and I pray unto God that he will spare thy life to witness the return of his people unto him or their utter destruction, for I know that they must perish except they repent and return unto him. So I don't have this on good authority, meaning I don't, I don't, I have not found something that specifically states that our temple recommends come from these verses, but I suspect that they do, that the name temple recommend. Behold, my son, I cannot recommend them unto God, lest he should smite me, but behold, my son, I recommend thee unto God. When we meet with our bishop and uh, uh, state presidency members, and we have that interview, they are trying to decide whether or not they can recommend us unto God just like Mormon recommended his son, Moroni. That, that, that phrase, the temple recommend, that's how I think of it. I think of it in terms of these verses. Can, can, can I be recommended to God? Will, uh, uh, am I recommended to him as one of his to witness the return of his people unto him? I think that that's beautiful language, and I think that that adds some, some helpful and layered meaning to to a temple recommend. 
Uh, you know, it's no wonder that Mormon loved Captain Moroni so much, and no wonder that he named his own son after Captain Moroni. Like we, like I spoke about previously, Captain Moroni achieved Mormon's fondest dream, a military captain who protected his people and converted thousands of non-believers. By the end of the Amalekiah Wars, whole Lamanite armies were asking to join the people of Ammon in the land of Jershon, the anti-Nephi-Lehites. But that was not to be Mormon's experience. Um, from Mormon chapter 2 until his death and through Mor- Moroni, um, Mormon just saw losses after losses after losses, and the people refused to believe. His whole life was just one constant revolution of war. If nothing else, Mormon's life is a good explanation for why he included so much about Captain Moroni in his summary. I can just imagine Mormon poring over the records related to Captain Moroni, trying so hard to figure out how to do what Captain Moroni did. But Mormon never saw that success, and it must have been so disappointing to him. You know, I, I've struggled to try to understand that disparity and the pain of Captain Moroni, and, and I, this is an analogy. You know, I, I, I've got four sons, and I coach them in different sports, and I love coaching flag football. It's so fun. You know, I can sit in my office and dream up a play and go to practice and make them do it over and over again and then call it in the game, and sometimes they score on this play I've dreamed up, and I feel like the super smart coach, right? Um, other sports are more difficult to coach. You know, soccer and basketball is a little bit more like herding cats and um, but but flag football, you can have a pretty big effect. And um, I've learned that my best teams, you know, I coached for 10 years, and I've learned that my best teams have three things, talent, a plan, and execution. Over the years, I've developed my own playbook of plays, and I've seen um, those plays work on my team and other teams. You know, we have a plan that works. My most frustrating years coaching are when we have talent to go with the plan. I mean, we need to have some talent. We need to have some speed. We need to have some kids who can catch and can throw, and and that's important. And some years I've had that. I've had great talent, and I've had a great plan. And I, But I haven't been able to, probably through my own lack of, of, of being a, a good coach, but sometimes I haven't been able to get a particular team to consistently execute. We get drop passes or missed flag grabs. I can practice and teach and practice and teach, but I can't always force execution. A few weeks ago, a week, a few weeks ago uh, this year, I coached a game that I found so frustrating. We really could have won the game. We had the talent, and we had the plan, and they knew the plays. But in some very key ways, we didn't execute. It was my 11-year-old son Lincoln's team, and I really wanted him to, to win it this year. We'd gotten second twice before, and I wanted him to know what it was like to, to win the championship but after we lost, just through a couple of small errors, I was really, I was devastated and much more so than my son Lincoln. And it was so frustrating to see how a few things could have just, if just a few things had gone differently, it would have created a very different result. And I was really bothered. And frankly, I was bothered that I was so bothered. And and in the midst of that, I was, you know, preparing this lesson. And and I I thought of Mormon reading about Captain Moroni. Captain Moroni had a plan, he had the talent, and his people executed. Mormon was not a lesser captain than Moroni. He didn't have a worse plan. He had the same plan, the plan of salvation. He didn't have worse talent. I don't believe that the people were less capable during Mormon's time than during Captain Moroni's time. But Mormon lacked one thing. He lacked execution, not his, but his people's. 
To explain better what I'm getting at, let's read Alma chapter 18, verse 10, to learn more about it, what it means to execute. It says, Now when King Lamoni heard that Ammon was preparing his horses and his chariots, he was more astonished because of the faithfulness of Ammon, saying, Surely there has not been any servant among all my servants that has been so faithful as this man, for even he doth remember all my commandments to execute them. What does it mean to execute God's commandments? I don't think it merely means that Ammon was just doing what he was supposed to be doing. I think it it's that he was doing it right away. Immediately after finishing taking care of the sheep, he was off preparing the horses and the chariots for King Lamoni. It was the immediateness that was so impressive to Lamoni. It was Ammon's quickness to observe Lamoni's commands. Remember those words? Who else was quick to observe? Mormon was, right? He was chosen by the prophet Amaron to be the custodian of the plates because he was sober and quick to observe. Now, in an earlier um, Come Follow Me lesson, there's a talk by Elder Bednar uh, where he talks about quickness to observe. It's a 2005 BYU devotional address by Elder Bednar. You can Google it. It's fabulous. And he talks about two ways that you can be quick to observe or two definitions of quick to observe. One is this idea of quick to understand, right? Quick-wittedness, that you can understand something quickly, that you learn fast. And then this other idea of quickness to keep the commandments, quickness to obey. So which is the type do you think that Amaron was talking about as it relates to Mormon? Noticing that he was sober and quick to observe. Now, truthfully, for a, for a long time, I thought that, you know, he just noticed that, man, Mormon was smart. What a smart kid. Ten years old, look how smart that brilliant kid is. I mean, he was some kind of savant or something. That's kind of what I had always felt like Amaron meant by saying quick to observe. But I, I don't think that's right. And based on what Elder Bednar is talking about, I, don't, I think that it was Mormon's quick willingness to obey that caught Amaron's eye. Uh, you know, to, to, to elaborate on this, in Alma 5721, about the stripling warriors, it says, Yea, they did observe and they did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. Yea, and even according to their faith it was done unto them. And I did remember the words which they did say unto me that their fathers had taught them, that their mothers had taught them. Forgive me. And I did remember the words which they said unto me that their mothers had taught them. that God would protect them, right? That God would protect them if they were obedient. That's what the mothers taught the stripling warriors. The stripling warriors knew that sometimes it is enough just to know the plan and execute it. My flag football teams, I need talent, a plan, and execution. But these stripling, these mothers of the stripling warriors knew that if you follow the plan and execute it and perform every word of command with exactness, that God will bring the talent. Would anyone argue that the stripling warriors were better soldiers, better fighters than the hardened Lamanite armies? No one can argue that. They were not preserved because they were better fighters, that they were more because they were more talented. They were preserved and protected because God brought the talent. The stripling warriors knew the plan and they executed it with exactness and immediateness with sharpness, right? 
And the stripling, the mother, their mothers understood that. And that's what Mormons people did not do. They did not obey. They were not quick to observe the commandments of God. And even though Mormon had a great plan, and even though there was plenty of talent around him, their failure to execute led to their downfall. And it can lead to ours. We need to be quick to observe as well. What are the areas of our lives? Where are the areas where we are not quick to observe? You know, it, it talks about here that even according to their faith, these stripling warriors, even according to their faith, it was done unto them. You know, this kind of harkens back to what Moroni's or what Mormon talked about, how that if miracles and angels have ceased, it is because faith has ceased. It was done unto the stripling warriors according to their faith. They were protected and preserved according to their faith. And they showed their faith by performing the word of command with exactness and immediateness. And so this is exactly what we were also talking about earlier with, Clay, with Clayton Christensen and about how God reserves his most powerful gifts for those on the front lines. The stripling warriors, remember, when they were being chased and Helaman asked, you know, that, that, that the army has stopped chasing them. They might be, they might be uh, attacking the armies of Antipas or they could be laying in wait for us so that we come back and are slaughtered. And they, they, Helaman asked, my sons, what shall we do? And, and they said that we will go and do because we know that the Lord will protect us. That our mothers have taught us that if we will have faith that God will protect us. They were willing to run to the front lines. And because of that, they were given powerful gifts. When I was in high school, you know, my stake did one of those three degree of glory, three degrees of glorious activities. You know, one of those ones we're not allowed to do anymore because they're not very doctrinally sound. We were all in the gym, and there were all these different booths with tasks to perform. And there was also an area roped off and called the relaxation station. You know, here I was a junior or a senior. Um, and I'm walking around, and I was uh, with this little deacon in our ward, and it was a stake. It was it was youth conference, right? And we were all, with all these booths, all these little tasks, and you got points or tickets for how well you did on these different tasks, or you could go to the relaxation station and have food and play video games and things like that. And um, you know, at the end of this whole thing, all of a sudden the lights flickered, and you were dead quote-unquote, dead, right? And then you went through this line or judgment and you turned in your tickets and according to how many tickets you had, that's whether you went to the celestial or the terrestrial or the telestial kingdom. I know I'm not the only one that, that you know, lived through this activity and, and you know, there's, it, it, there's a lot of things, like I said, doctrinally wrong with this activity, especially this whole point system, right? And that's probably why it's not done anymore. But I had a very illuminating experience because of this whole point system. You know, from the beginning, I had a sense that something was up with this activity, that there was a catch. And I was a priest, and I was assigned to this, to this. I guess he was a teacher. And he was hungry, as teachers tend to be, and he kept wanting to go to the relaxation station and grab a snack. But I wouldn't have it. You know, I was like, no, we have got to be diligent. And so we did as many tasks at these booths as we could. We got as many points as we could. We didn't waste a single moment. We did our best. One of the tasks involved this bowl of M&M's, and you had to pluck M&Ms out with, they, you were given an imperfect utensil of some kind that was not the ideal tool to remove these M&Ms. And that was the, that was the, the challenge, right? To try to get as many M&Ms as you could. And every M&M had a different amount of points. And the blue M&Ms were the most valuable. But try as we might, my partner and I simply could not amass very many blue M&Ms in the time that we were allotted to do this task. And as I went through line and we were assigned to the terrestrial kingdom, to my shock and horror and dismay, 
um, the points that we missed, that, that we were so close to getting into the celestial kingdom, and if we had just grabbed a couple more blue M&Ms, we would have been in. And we had done our very best. And it bothered me. It bothered me that despite my best efforts, I had been relegated to the terrestrial kingdom. And the next morning at the youth conference testimony meeting, you know, I I, I knew that something was off and I was going to get up and say something about it. And I had just read Stephen A. Robinson's book, Believing Christ. And I realized from reading that book what was up, what was what was wrong. So at the next morning's testimony meeting for youth conference, I stood up and I said, yesterday's activity on the three degrees of glory was wonderful and yet lacking on one key point. Then I, I briefly shared my experience and about how my partner and I had not wasted any time, but that we had just been incapable of effectively collecting blue M&Ms and that that weakness had done us in, that lack of talent. But I said, we believed in Christ and we knew that through his atonement and because of his perfect life, that had this been a real judgment here in this activity, that Christ would have been at that table where we turned in our tickets and he would have known the thoughts and intents of our heart and he would have known how hard we worked and how hard we tried and that he would have stood there with a big bag of blue M&Ms of his own ready to make up for our shortcomings, ready to bring the talent. And that is what the mothers of the stripling warriors knew. Their sons didn't need to be the most talented warriors. What they needed was to know the plan and to execute it. And they, like Captain Moroni, experienced the joy of seeing God bear his holy arm in their lives. But Mormon did not. And perhaps only Ether and Christ and Noah fully understand what it was like to be Mormon and to have everyone reject him and reject the truth. Mormon knew the tremendous sadness and frustration of seeing his people reject the plan and refuse to execute. He watched the downfall of his entire civilization as they refused to listen, refused to tap into the talent or power of Christ, the strengthening and enabling power of the atonement, refused to have it done unto them according to their faith. Mormon may not have known the success that Captain Moroni knew, and he may have died not having seen conversions like Captain Moroni. But I shared some of these thoughts with my son, Asher, who's a sophomore, and he made the comment that in life, Captain Moroni may have been more successful, but that in death, Mormon's work creating the Book of Mormon has converted millions. And that is so true. Brothers and sisters, Mormon was real. I know that Mormon lived I know that his son Moroni lived. I know that he was named for the Waters of Mormon and that what happened at the Waters of Mormon happened. Alma repented, Alma the Elder repented and taught at the Waters of Mormon. I know that the stripling warriors were real. I know that Ammon executed Lamoni's commands with immediateness. Ammon was quick to observe, that the stripling warriors were quick to observe, that Mormon was quick to observe. I know the Book of Mormon is true. I know that Joseph Smith translated it by the gift and power of God. It has changed my life like the Bible has changed my life. 
just as I know the Bible to be true and to be the Word of God, I know the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. And I know that we have prophets today. I am grateful for Jesus Christ, and I know that he lives, and I bear my testimony that the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ is the last rung. There are so many wonderful things in the gospel, so many wonderful things in this beautiful church, but there are some pains and heartaches so deep that only Christ can reach and heal them. And if any of us have had any of these horrible things in Mormon or Moroni 9 happen to us in our lives, any of or anything like unto it, I just want you to know that Christ can heal those things. And I know that's true, and I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.